This is The Drive with Josh Graham podcast. Tune into The Drive weekday afternoons 3 to 7 on Sports Hub Triad. Josh Graham loves to talk sports. He also loves to take herbal body baths to keep his skin supple and youthful looking. You're on The Drive with Josh Graham. It is a Friday drive, and we appreciate you hanging out with us. There was a college football coach who said something earlier this week I believe to be the dumbest thing I've heard an athlete or coach say so far this year. But before we get to that, let's check in on day two of the Wells Fargo Championship in Charlotte. Big names. They're making their moves here on day two. Phil Mickelson, not one of those. He was, he's probably the biggest name in this field. Even though he hasn't won a lot in recent years, it's still Phil Mickelson. Anytime he's in a tournament, he's the most liked golfer not named Tiger Woods. I believe that. And he was seven under par on day one, leading the field. But today, rough sledding. He was a part of the 7.30 a.m. group that started on one. He shot a 75 today. That's four over par. So now he's... Three off the lead at three under. You look at some of the other names here. The last time Phil won, by the way. You have to go all the way back to February of 2019. Rory McIlroy shot 66 today. Golf's a lot of fun, and he's a lot of fun to watch when he's playing well. Five under par for the day. That's a 66. He's now four under for the tournament, two off the lead. It's the First time that Rory is making a weekend cut in a PGA Tour event in two months. He's really struggled in recent months. Looked pretty good going, we thought, into this calendar year, and maybe he could contend in Augusta, but just not the case. He lost his game a bit. McElroy, 66 today. He's going to be in the mix. Bubba Watson tied with Phil Mickelson. At three under par, there are a lot of familiar names at the top of the leaderboard, just as there are a lot of names that you probably don't know as much about. Here's how I function when it comes to golf. I think this even applies for the majors. I root for the names to be there at the end. I want Mickelson. I want Rory. I want DeChambeau. I want all the way down the list the top names to be competing, but I want the underdog to win it. I loved the Colin Morikawa story in a major. I loved following Will Zalatoris putting aside the Wake Forest stuff with him, the Wake Forest lineage at the Masters last month. I root for the names because that's what pulls you in and builds the drama. You have history with them, but I want the underdogs to win. The only exception to that rule is Tiger Woods. So when I look at the top of this leaderboard, three at the very top at six under par, Matt Wallace, Gary Woodland, Patrick Rogers. Two out of those three have never won a PGA Tour event. Also in the top five, Kramer Hickok. Never won a PGA Tour event. I don't know if Scott Stallings has or not, but there are a lot of guys competing at the Wells Fargo who have an opportunity to get their first PGA Tour tour win. I'd love to see it, just as long as you got some of those big names in the mix because that's what's going to get me to a TV set. That's what's going on at the Wells Fargo. You got a lot of golfers chasing cash, the purse, $8.1 million at Quail Hollow Golf Club. Okay, as I promised, the dumbest thing I've heard a coach say so far this year, that honor goes to Jimbo Fisher. Given how Texas A&M finished last year, sorry to bring that up, Tar Heel fans, Alabama's road to College Station, their road trip in October, was already going to be worth circling. However, now... It's completely jumped up a notch. Just like the golf tournament's jumped up a notch when you have Rory McIlroy shooting five under on Friday, 
this matchup just got souped up. It's guaranteed to be in that CBS 330 time slot. Why? Because Jimbo put his foot in his mouth. He was talking, it seems like, to a ton of boosters when a fan asked him, Hey, coach, coach, what's it going to take to beat Alabama other than Nick Saban's retirement? What a disrespectful question that is. Hey, coach, do you think the only way you're going to beat Bama is if Saban quits? (laughs) Jimbo, he's one of the few coaches in college football active who've won a national title. How long is that list? Now that Les is out at Kansas, how long is that list? Urban Meyer, he's coaching in the NFL, not in college anymore. So I really do think, am I missing anybody here? I think it's Mac Brown at Carolina who won at Texas. It is Nick Saban. It's Jimbo Fisher. And there's someone I have to be forgetting. Ed Orgeron. He won at LSU a couple years back, or I guess it was last calendar year. And Dabo Sweeney. I think that's the list. I think that's the list of active head coaches to win a national championship. That's not a long list. So Jimbo is, of course, going to have some pride, especially since he knows Nick and was an assistant for Nick at LSU for six or seven years before becoming the coach in waiting at Florida State under Bowden, he said, quote, to this fan in response to that question, we're going to beat his ass when he's there. Don't worry about it. And the room gasped. Then they broke out in awkward laughter. We're going to beat his ass when he's there. Don't worry. Well, You better be worried because nobody calls out Nick Saban. Have you lost your mind, Jimbo? Who calls out Nick Saban? If you're going to call out Saban, you don't attach your name to it. You do one of those anonymous deals where you're talking to Feldman or Adam Rittenberg and you take shots that way. You know, the way that John Calipari allegedly took shots at Mike Krzyzewski with USA Basketball and how he recruited. You don't attach your name to it, and if you do attach your name to it, you don't do it in a public setting. And you sure as hell don't do it if you're in the same conference with that coach who you can argue is the greatest college football coach of all time. What are you doing, Jimbo? So Nick Saban who I think is participating this week apart with this uh, Champions Classic event that the PGA Tour is having in Alabama. He was asked about this. Unrelated note, Saban had this massive chew in his mouth when he was on video with Ernie Els. He was paired with Ernie, and Ernie's interviewing him, and Saban, more uncomfortable than usual, it seemed like, Charles Barkley was at this event, noted Alabama native. He apparently can golf now. That swing looks a lot better than it did 10 years ago in one of the first viral Twitter moments when golf, the golf world, took to Charles Barkley to make fun of him. His swing actually looks decent now, and he's hitting fairways. Kind of impressive. I'm getting off the beaten path here. Saban was, of course, asked about Jimbo's comments, and I think he responded perfectly. Coach, got to ask, your friend Jimbo said yesterday that um, at some point while you're in Tuscaloosa, he was going to beat your butt. That wasn't the word that he used, but did you have any response for that? In golf? (laughs) (laughs) I think he he meant on the football field. (laughs) Well, I'm sure there will come a day, you know, but... uh... Is that what he was talking about? Nah, football? He, he, was talking, he was talking about football. Oh, he was? Oh, he was? Football? Oh, that's nice. That's cute. One of these days. Eh, he might have a shot one of these days. So condescending. So perfect. 
I enjoyed all of that. In golf, <laughs> I think I'd take Jimbo over Saban in golf. Maybe. Probably not when you consider this stat. Saban owns his former assistants. 23 times Nick Saban has been a head coach coaching against one of his former assistants who ended up being a head coach. 23 times that's happened. Saban has won all 23. 23 meetings, 23 wins. Nick Saban's undefeated against his assistants. Never lost. Last year alone, he was 4-0, taking it to Jeremy Pruitt in Tennessee. The closest anybody got was Lane Kiffin, who lost by two touchdowns and allowed 60 points to Bama. And the other two coaches he beat were ranked in the top 25, beating Georgia, and beating Georgia by a ton. And yes, beating Jimbo and Texas A&M 45-21 or 45-24. Won by three touchdowns in that game. It wasn't even close. I get A&M had one of its best seasons they've had in a while. People are really excited about the Aggies. Jimbo, he's going to turn it around because he's getting paid like a coach who should be able to turn it around. But Saban has not lost to one of his former assistants. Bama is playing on another level. Those four wins I just told you about from last year, Bama won by a combined score of 91 points in those games. If you combine the margins of those four games, 304, or make it 204 to 113. 91 points. We're going to beat his ass. Okay. Give me Bama big on October the 9th. Is there a chance this is just like two friends joking with each other? Because, I mean, like, they're in the promotion business, too. I mean, it could be like a Mayweather thing where, like, okay, maybe people aren't as excited for this A&M-Alabama game as we thought, so I've got to say something to boosters. I've got to say something in meetings to be interesting and and to get people riled up for this A&M season. Are you saying Jimbo Fisher in this equivalent? This might actually actually track. This is the equivalent of Jimbo Fisher grabbing Nick Saban's hat when they go head-to-head like Jake Paul did to Floyd yesterday? I mean, yeah, they know each other well enough, right? I mean, there's no bad blood here. And he's in front of people who expect him to say, like, so if they, if, say they asked that question and he was like, ah, I don't know, I think they're going to beat us by 21 next year, like, he looks like even more dumbass. Like, so I think he said what he had to say, <laughs> but also is drumming up this heavyweight bout, quote, that's going to happen when football comes back around. I don't think Saban cares. I mean, I... He actually, doesn't care either, but I mean, he's trying to help out old dude. I'm sure he likes the revenue checks. I actually think that, uh, I lied. I think he does care, and he's going to use that as motivation, and I don't think he's going to call off the dogs this fall. I Lane think, Kiffin I think it's also, be a blowout. Well, Lane Kiffin reacted to this and put out a tweet that made oh, me what did think, he say? just that, oh no, this is going on the weight room wall, and Lane is so like meta with his tweets, that's what makes me think like this isn't as big of a deal, and he's just joking about it as much as... I am. I hope you're right. I'd be actually impressed with Saban and Jimbo. See, in my experiences dealing with Jimbo back when he was at Florida State, this doesn't sound like a guy who's going to be making a lot of jokes. And I and I don't get that vibe from Saban much either. But well, I mean, and again, they do know each other, so maybe you're right. But uh, I think, regardless of how you slice it, give me Bama big. Both teams are going to be breaking in new quarterbacks. I'll give the advantage to Bryce Young, who is the only player in last year's class that was ranked higher than Clemson's DJ Uyunglele. See, we saw what Big Cinco was able to do last year. His first career college game, you're on the road against Notre Dame, and he throws for over 400 yards at Notre Dame Stadium. It's amazing. Right? Bryce Young was ranked higher than him. And the only reason he didn't play is because Mac Jones had a Heisman-like season and was taken in the top 15 picks of the draft. Give me Bryce Young in that matchup. A&M's going to miss Kellen Mond. Not because Kellen Mond was otherworldly great, but for A&M standards, he was above average. He was a really good quarterback. And this guy that they're going to replace him with, all I read about him online, 
He has 4-5 speed. If every story I read about you talks about how fast you are, one of the best dual-threat quarterbacks in the country, and nothing says that you can throw the ball, I'm concerned. Bama, big. Jimbo Fisher, what he said, one of the dumbest things. I'd say it is the dumbest thing a coach has said in 2021. Welcome to the show that cloned the Loch Ness Monster and got her drunk. The Drive with Josh Graham. Even though the Canes dropped one in overtime, that's still a dozen or so consecutive games with points for the Canes. I think 13 straight, 18 of the last 20 for Carolina as well. And we're being joined by the head coach of the Canes, Rod Brindamore. Crazy to think, with the condensed schedule, that was the last home game of the regular season. Of course, the postseason's coming up. Carolina has two remaining on the road against the Nashville Predators as coach joins us here. Rod, I keep hearing comparisons to the 2006 team in terms of the excitement going into the playoffs. If we're going back to the team you captained to a cup win, at what point that year did you feel that team oh, yeah, we could compete for a Stanley Cup. Well, that team was, uh, you know, a little different in that, you know, the years before we didn't have much success. And then all of a sudden it came together. But really at the start of training camp with that group, we could tell because we we added a bunch of players. And it was like, wow, these are really good players. You could just tell we were a different kind of team. And the whole year was like that. It was a pretty easy year. Um, You know, this year – feel like you know we've had the same group you know for a couple of years for the most part so i think the the expectations and i think the anticipation is was high right from the beginning with this group in college football i remember a coach told me when you first start to build something up you need to teach guys how to win and then they get to a point where they expect to win and when you get to the top level like if you're looking at college football alabama for example that's a place it's their responsibility to win. This year's team, you know, they have guys who have been to the playoffs the last two years. When you go into a season, is Stanley Cup something you look at and say, we can do this if we do our job? Well, for sure. That's that's the only goal. So, you know, it's obviously not easy to attain, but it's, it's what we're, you know, training for and practicing for and, you know, trying to get ready for. So, you know, it's uh, we got a couple games here left to to get to that opportunity to play for that, and that's you know we got to knock these games out because they, you know, obviously will will influence a lot probably um, as far as our finish of the regular season. But and then we got to you know that's what we've been training for all year is to get a chance to win the cup. So we're definitely that's the expectation, and you talked about expectations to win every night. That's what we expect to do, and the standards are high, but. Uh, I think that's the kind of group we have right now. Rob Brindamore, Canes coach with us here on Sports Hub Triad. Knowing you, I doubt individual accolades mean much, but would winning the President's Trophy for the first time in franchise history mean something to you? Well, you know what? It would mean something if we needed it. <laughs> if, uh, you know, we had a Game 7 somewhere in the Stanley Cup Finals, I'd be like, damn, that was nice that we, you know, <laughs> won that thing. Um, and, you know, maybe look back on later in life that we had, we were, that team did that. But it, it, honestly, it's not really, like I said, it's important if it becomes important. Um, the important part was, to, number one, get to the, the playoffs, make sure you get in, and then, you know, fire on all cylinders once we get there. You've said this, I think, all year. It's a good problem to have when you have multiple goaltenders you feel that can do the job. You have three pretty good ones. Ideally, how would you like to approach your goaltending room heading into the playoffs? How do you manage it differently? Yeah, well, first of all, you hope everybody's healthy and sharp, and then it's like three good options. And You know, obviously you can't play three guys. You you really – most times you play one, but I I, don't, I think with this year, the way it has gone on, there's a high likelihood that you would use two for sure. And then if there's an injury or some sort of something happens, you, you'd really feel good that you have three in, in the in, in the bank, so to speak. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get through the regular season here and then have to make those decisions. I'm not sure if many people knew this, but when you played, you weren't much of a fighter with the Rangers and Caps being a big part of the discussion this week, 
Is there a fight that sticks out as a very memorable one you either had in your NHL career or even before that? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple. I mean, I, I think earlier in my career, it was a part of the game. And so, you know, all my all my scraps were in my first 10 years in the league. And then when I got here, I don't even know if I, I might have had one. Like, it was starting to wane out. Um, but but uh, is there a memorable one? Yeah, I mean, you remember the, the ones you did well in, and then you remember the ones that you, you took a few, you know. So there's there's a few that stand out. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's a part of the game that I think the league has done a good job, actually, in getting, getting rid of. Like, there's no point to fight just to fight. I mean, I think when two guys – one thing that's great about hockey is when two guys – feel like they've been wrong each other they can settle it you know and, and that's kind of still in the game but what we saw the other night was kind of you know i don't want to say bush league but it was it's stuff that you know we shouldn't be in the game anymore um and you know like i said when league probably maybe wish they would have done handled it a little differently but uh you know boys will be boys and and the players do do take care of things on their own what's the dumbest fight you ever got into uh, well, they're all kind of dumb when you look back on them. Um, <laughs> I, I, I got one, and I remember one of my earlier days. I didn't really know. I wasn't, you know, experienced, and I just walked into a, a fight, and I don't even remember who it was. It was in Buffalo, but I took one right on the face, like just right away. And I remember Rick talking after, telling me, you know, like kind of giving me pointers, like what are you doing? Like, you know, <laughs> pulling me aside and had to show me kind of some techniques. And, and uh, you know, it, it's it's – they're all kind of dumb when you really think about it. Uh, you know, it's part of the game, like I said, that I think we're, we're trying to get out of the game. Let me close with this. Rob Brindamore, Canes coach, kind enough to join us on Sports Hub Triad. I've heard stories about the great Bob Brindamore, as Trip Tracy yeah. calls him, but I haven't heard many about your mom, Linda Brindamore. It is Mother's Day this weekend. How involved was she in hockey as you were coming right. up, Rob? Well, the dads always get credit, it seems like, for the sports stuff. And, and my dad coached me, so that's probably part of it. But sure. the, the moms are always the ones that uh, are there to, you know, pick up the pieces when you have a bad game or, you know, the world seems to be ending because you, you got, you know, you lost a game or something happened. And and just always there for that support, right? And that's that, to me, is probably bigger, the biggest thing. And, my, I mean, my, my parents to this day are still the biggest fans. They watch every game and, and they're into it, and uh, you know it's it's been great to have that support from from both both parents. How do you shop for mom? Mm, I'm weak on this. I'm weak on this. I I, I kind of just cave to the one eight hundred flowers, and then it shows up at the door. You know, kind of <laughs> not not the best, but uh, hopefully they know that uh, they're appreciated. Rod, we appreciate what you're doing here in the state of North Carolina. Keep it up, and. Uh, we're going to be rooting you guys on in the playoffs. Thanks so much for doing it. All right. This. You got it, buddy. Take care, man. You got it. It's Rob Brindamore joining us on Sports Hub Triad. The Canes on the road facing the Nashville Predators. The Hornets are in action tonight. The Orlando Magic are in Charlotte. Bad loss for the Hornets last night against Chicago. Five of the last seven in the regular season are at Spectrum Center. That's some pretty good news. Zion's going to be on ta- in town on Sunday. I think it's the first time he's going to be playing a professional basketball game in the state of North Carolina. He was hurt the one time the Pelicans visited Charlotte a year ago. We're not going to have the Hornets broadcast tonight, though, because we've got another state championship high school football game to get to. Last night, it was Mount Tabor beating the Cleveland Rams at Keenan Stadium. Exciting game, 24-16 the final score in that one. Dave Pulaski, Drew Brackett, did a great job calling it. I was listening to that while sitting on the couch after an evening walk. Tonight, BDOT's been posting some of these pictures and videos of the Grimsley community getting ready for tonight. I sold them short last week. I thought if they were going head-to-head with Butler, things weren't going to go well in the 4A bracket. But Grimsley's got Cardinal Gibbons tonight. This should be a massive game. 7 o'clock, Keenan Stadium, Grimsley going head-to-head with Cardinal Gibbons. We'll talk about the matchup tonight with Dave Pulaski when he joins us. Uh, When Pulaski joins us in about 15 minutes. Also tonight, or this is actually tomorrow, Reedsville. Not a surprise there in the state title game. 
10-game spring sprint. Now you're at the point where you're playing for a title. It's Mountain Heritage, 5 o'clock kick uh, in Chapel Hill. All these games on Sports Up Try. That's the 2A state championship. Robert, do you believe that uh, the Mount Tabor boys were in school today? Uh, actually, I saw that they were not in school today. They weren't? It was like a, a flex day. So some kids were in school, some kids weren't, some teachers were at work, some weren't. I was about to say, usually you win a state championship, you might be, well, you wouldn't be out of school yet for winter break. It's not that late in the year. But it would be on a Saturday that you'd have your state championship game regardless of where it's played. Because of COVID, they're spreading it out. So kids can have the locker room. They can sanitize the locker room. You can get one in on uh, one in at Carter-Finley, one in in Chapel Hill on Thursday, one in in Chapel Hill and Raleigh on Friday, and then two at each respective location on Saturday. But I'm just trying to imagine if these kids were going to school today, what that might be like. You win a state championship and then you show up to your 8.30 science class, your 8, eight o'clock U.S. history class. I'm trying to think of classes you'd have as a senior at Mount Tabor. I don't know the answer. Well, I mean, the drive-in would be good for them. Already, uh, I live right behind Mount Tabor, actually, so on my way to work, I go down like the straight street through the main part of Mount Tabor, and all the businesses out front had already changed their signage to – congratulate and talk about how great it was they won the state title i thought that was pretty cool it's been quite a week for me it's been an otherworldly busy week so we'll sum it all up by keeping it simple next on the drive now comes the moment you have all been waiting for all right whenever you're ready back to the drive with josh graham on sports hub triad While I was on my evening walk in Old Salem last night, somebody rode by me with this song blaring outside their window. And I don't know about you, Robert. Anytime I hear this song in this beat, who sings it again? Thundercat. Thundercat. I just find myself vibing in a way I don't vibe for other songs. I'm standing up here in the studio. I just kind of go side to side. Have you ever seen the music video before? I haven't seen the music video. That's He has like a fisheye lens on one of those uh, like extendo arm things that people use to take selfies, and that's pretty much how he's walking. I was imagine, imagining a very simple music video like Lonely Boy by the Black Keys where you just have this portly gentleman dancing to the song and the shot never changes the entire song. Uh, this one's pretty much just him walking down the street. But I can see with that. With a fisheye lens, so it's like a different uh, view on it. I'll have to check that out. Great song choice on your part there. Darren Vott's going to be here in just a little bit. I know you like that hot goss when it comes to college football prospects who are now NFL players. Bruce Feldman, usually before the draft, talks to a bunch of coaches. They speak anonymously. You give them anonymity because you want them to be as honest as possible because that makes the story really good. Well, now Adam Rittenberg has caught up with a number of college coaches in all the different conferences and wanted their thoughts on where many of these players ended up. And here are a few takeaways that I had. Number one, this is the same as it went pre-draft with Bruce. The coaching community loves Mac Jones. I think most of them understand Trevor Lawrence. He's the best quarterback of the class the best quarterback in this draft, you could not pass up on him. But two, three, and four, I think you would have legitimate arguments among coaches. Zach, Fields, and also Mac Jones. I don't even think Trey Lance is in that mix. Coaches, they understood it. This is according to Adam's story. Coaches understood why Lance went at number three. But went as far to say, they're not going to run, this is a quote, a traditional offense with that kid. That's according to a Power 5 offensive coordinator. That same OC said, 
on Justin Fields. There's a lot of pressure on that organization to win, and Justin's talented enough, but man, they paid a large price. Pretty much all the comments about Mac Jones were incredibly positive. He goes to the Patriots. Nobody really seemed that aggressive and trying to land him. Chicago traded up to take Fields, not Mac. The Patriots didn't trade up at all to take their quarterback, seeming like they were perfectly okay. If Mac wasn't there, they'd take somebody else. Here's the quote that an SEC head coach said about Mac Jones. Quote, Mac was the most ready out of all the quarterbacks. You talk about someone who you could who could throw into a tight window, somebody who could make all the throws. Everybody talks about the arm but his arm is big enough. That was the biggest knock on Deshaun Watson. When Deshaun came out of the draft, I listened to people I thought were very smart say, oh, you're going to want Mitchell Trubisky. You're going to want Trubisky because he has more of the tools. He has a deeper, a, a bigger arm than Deshaun. If Deshaun didn't have the weapons that he had, he wouldn't be great. If he didn't have the Clemson recruiting, he wouldn't be great. If Mitchell Trubisky was in Clemson, look out! It sounds a lot to me like Mac Jones versus Trey Lance. That's going to be the discussion, I think, as we move forward here. Mac, more pro-ready than Trey. Trey has all these tools, but that doesn't mean they're going to translate only seeing him for one season at North Dakota State, and that season was not last year. Coaches, they swear by Mac Jones. A Big Ten offensive coordinator agreed with that SEC head coach saying, quote, the best guy I saw. That might be the best pick in the first round. The ball was always where it needed to be when it was supposed to be there, and the receiver always had a chance to do something with it. They really like Mac Jones. Maybe the most interesting piece of the story, though, in this college coaching confidential, was the section on the Tyreek Hill effect, where apparently everybody's trying to find the next Tyreek. So they're willing to take chances on guys that maybe would not be first or second round picks in past years. Nine of the first 10 wide receivers off the board in rounds one or two were six feet or under. Kind of amazing here. Here's what a head coach pointed to as the perfect example of this. Florida's Kadarius Tony. This is a Power 5 coach saying, quote, Kadarius was a Wildcat guy. He's in the game. Get ready for a fly sweep or get ready for a trick play. He was an elite guy that way, but for the guy, for a guy like that to go in the first round, I hadn't seen it before. That's the Tyree Kill effect. That's what he had to say about it. Everybody's looking for it. The Chiefs are succeeding. Everybody's trying to find that guy. Everybody's following the leader in that sport. Coaches seem to really like the Panthers draft. The only pick that was hotly contested in Rittenberg's story was taking J.C. Horn. A Power 5 OC said, I was shocked Sertam wasn't the first corner taken. He wasn't a racer. But an SEC coach came to... J.C. Horn's defense, talking about his versatility. He could cover the slot, the perimeter. He's physical. The quote saying, he caught people's attention with the 40 time, but the tape matches the speed, and that's why he was drafted so high. Robert absolutely loved Carolina taking in the fifth round Davian Nixon out of Iowa. That's apparently a pick that a lot of coaches like too. Quote, this is from a Big Ten coach. Great pick by Carolina. If he plays consistently, they've got a really good player. He was just inconsistent. The flash plays were unbelievable, but there were times where he just disappeared. Talking about Shy Smith, the wide receiver Carolina took in the late rounds, and SEC DC said, I was a little surprised he went this low as he did. He was a really talented kid, and apparently scouts and head coaches in college football really liked Carolina taking Chuba Hubbard in the fourth round as well, as did Matt Rule's wife. So there you go. That's college football. College coaching confidential, excuse me. Now it's time for you to let me know, now that we're heading into the weekend, it is Friday, everybody. Tell me something good that's happened with you this week. You know, it's been a stressful, long week for yours truly. Tell me something good 
that's going on. 336-777-1600. It could be in sports. It could be outside of sports. We allot this time in a segment we call Weekly Positivity. Oh, yeah. Bask in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. Hey, Robert. What's up, dude? You mind getting my back over here? Oh. In the water of uh, Lake Minnetonka. Yeah. 336-777-1600 being the phone number. Robert, I'll tell you something good. Tell me. My dad has tried to FaceTime me twice during this radio show. So he's feeling well enough to talk, which is really good. I don't want to say he's turned a corner, because the doctors haven't said that. But... He had a positive day yesterday and seems to have taken another positive step today. Doesn't mean tomorrow will bring a positive step. We hope it does, but that's been really good. I got engaged. That's good. It was a short week for me working Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Very good doesn't feel that way with everything going on, but I love that. Zion Williamson got hurt. That's not good. But the Zion sneakers I got that I thought would be more expensive, very good. Already someone pointing it out on social media that me buying these shoes the day that Zion had a right finger injury might be the start of a Josh Graham curse. Zion, if you need my ring finger, you can have it. Sorry, Sarah Bradford. Oh! And remember I mentioned that at the beach, I got seafood that was shipped two days too late? Next week, I'm going to have another box sent my way. And I even forgot last night, Blue Apron. We had Blue Apron shipped in yesterday. So a lot of shipped food. I love it. Reasons to be very positive. Robert Walsh, tell me something good. Ah, uh, we got a little snippet from J. Cole's new music project that's going to fully release next Friday, but he dropped it last night at midnight uh, called Interlude, and I'm so pumped. We hadn't got new J. Cole music in a couple years, so I'm all, or at least an album. He's dropped a lot of single stuff, a lot of him with somebody else, but I'm excited to hear his new project. It's called The Off Season, and it comes out next Friday, and I'm stoked. That last album he put out two or three years ago was really good. I think everything he's put out has been good. Literally, any album he puts out, like front to back, there are very few skips if you listen to it in order. What's your favorite J. Cole song? Mm, I love Love Yours. I love Adolescence. I love... From his new stuff... It's probably the old stuff that I like more, though. Me too. Workout is still... I know it's... A typical answer. That's still my favorite J. Cole song. That's his least favorite song. Because he wrote that to be like mainstream, to give that mainstream feel, to yeah. get him popular. And then he did it, and now he's like, oh my god, I hate that song. But I like that song. Sometimes that happens. Like Dave Matthews hates the song Crash Into Me. Sorry, Dave. We like it. Let's go to someone anonymous. Is this an SEC football coach? Hey, anonymous speaker who wants to chime in. Tell me which conference you coach in. Well, I can't tell you that, but I will say for positivity today, my divorce was finalized. So um, <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm feeling pretty darn positive. What right what conference are you in, coach? Uh, n- non-conference. Oh, non-conference. He's independent now, if That's you right. can't tell. It's independent, season. yeah. Notre Dame. Oh, Brian Kelly. Filing for a divorce. Learn that today. <laughs> I'd love it. 
anytime I talk about planning the wedding, anytime I bring that up, if this guy just chimes in and tells me how happy he is that he's filing a divorce. What is that? The second time in two days? Let's go to Jeff in Burlington. Jeff, tell me something good. Man, I just want to tell you that after seven years of writing, I finally released my first book. Aww. And it just feels good to get that thing done. What's your so, book about? My book is actually about, I was in a really bad accident when I was 18 years old. Uh, my right arm got ripped off my body. Um, and so it's the story of kind of what I went through, how I learned how to live with one arm. Uh, eventually broke a Guinness Book of World Records for the longest drive of a golf ball hit with one arm. So it's just kind of a story of how I lost my arm, um, how I found Jesus, and then just kind of just some cool things that have happened because of it. So right. what could have potentially been the worst day of my life ended up being one of the best. Right on, Jeff. How long was that drive? Um, in the, they, they didn't count the bounce in the roll, um, but from the point I hit the ball to the point the ball first touched the ground was uh, 258 yards, 2 feet, 4 inches. Love that. Well, have a great weekend, Jeff. Thank you for sharing with us. Robert? Make, that makes sense, though. It took him seven years to write it because he only had one arm. Take twice as long. Robert, tell me one more thing good before we close out Weekly Positivity. Uh, I planted some cucumbers a couple days ago, and they are sprouting now, and that is just one of the best feelings in the world for me is seeing, I don't know, seeing something grow after you planted it. I was tickled to walk out this morning, and all of them are just coming up, and they look so cute, and I can't wait for them to start binding them tomato cages and give me some cute little pre-pickles. And that's been... Actually, do we have time to get to any more calls or no? No calls. Oh, yeah. We're well past how long this normally goes. That's been Weekly Positivity. Wow! You didn't give me the record scratch fade there. It was Appreciate already so that. low. I gotcha. Somebody points out, is it a coincidence that Zion's ring finger got hurt and Josh just got engaged and bought his shoes? I hope not. Or I hope that is a coincidence. We'll talk John Means, Albert Pujols, and do some comparing with Darren. Next. We're now the opposite of the front of sports talk because we're, well, we're, we're back to it. Get it? Well, that's not funny. Back to the drive. That's moronic. With Josh Graham. I'm begging. Darren Vaught, now with me, and Robert, and with you. We'll do some comparing with Darren in a second. Um, literally seconds before the radio microphones turned on, just I was just reminded of how neat that moment was with John Means throwing the no-hitter for the Orioles a couple days ago and the video that was put out that Sports Illustrated, TMZ, and many others have covered with my dad getting emotional and me as a result becoming emotional as a result of it. I can tell you that we've heard from John and Caroline Means and this is something I told my dad about last night, but I'll share with you now that apparently they were just as emotional as me and my dad were because, as Caroline explained to me via social media and now via text, that John lost his dad last August to cancer. And these are her words, not mine, but these moments are almost just as big to us as I'm sure they were for you. So that's a pretty cool thing from Caroline Means, the wife of John Means, passing that along to us. Uh, just a really emotional week, as I'm sure you can imagine. Darren Vaught now joining us. Appreciate you pinch hitting on Monday and Tuesday. That no-hitter from John Means, I know you and I have a great relationship, and that's something that you probably thought about in the context of me being an Orioles fan, but first no-hitter in 52 years, dear Lord. Yeah, and the third, fourth, if you're willing to overlook the asterisk in Major League Baseball uh, this season before, um, you know, with the means thing, I'm glad you mentioned that because I saw on the, the Orioles broadcast that they keyed in on that, or at least John did. 
in his post-game interview. He, he mentioned it and brought it up, and it was one of those things very, very emotional for him because he was like, hey, I, I, my dad was here, right? And, and whatever, whatever spiritual way you want to believe that, he was like, I'm certain my dad was here when I threw this no-hitter. So I, I, can, I can imagine that they felt similar emotions to, to you and your dad. Um, just a cool, cool thing. But, you know, it, from a number standpoint, Josh, and you might view this as a bad thing. I think it's a cool number and, and with regard to the, the, the pullback view of Major League Baseball this season. That was, if I'm not mistaken, the 34th game thrown by a starting pitcher during which the starting pitcher went seven or more innings and gave up two or fewer hits this season. 34 of those already in Major League Baseball this season. In the truncated version of the Major League Baseball schedule that we had in 2020, there were only 32 of those games thrown. So it's just piling on to the fact that the pitching is really good this season. Yeah, there's no question about it. And I just wonder why we can't give him the benefit of the doubt for throwing a perfect game when it seems like we've seen so many on the other end of the spectrum, cookie-cutter, no-hitters, where a guy will hit three batters or you'll see all these intentional walks and all these things. Like, come on, that's a perfect game. I'm putting that as a perfect game in my book. It is. And, I mean, I don't know, 12 strikeouts, I don't know that you could have thrown any better, and it's all dependent on a drop third strike, which I think is a ridiculous rule anyway that baseball – could do without. I understand that it's trying to protect base runners from you know, the, the catcher fabricating a double play, but it, it, just in the same way that the infield fly rule is in effect, to me, you're still going to make a throw if that's your, your mentality, right? If a pop-up to the second baseman with runners on first and second comes, comes their way and they let it drop, I mean, you're still going to make two throws and get there in time. It would if that rule was eliminated, same with the drop third strike, I wouldn't. I would not cry about it one bit. I've got something that might want to make you cry. Um, my dad, I, I wanted to make sure my dad was listening right now, and he is. I just received a video that Robert now has in his DMs, that is from John Memes himself. This is John Means, who has a message for my dad. Scott, I just wanted to reach out and, and tell you how much that video meant to me and my family. Um, it was, it's just so cool to see how much this sport means to fans like you. And I just really hope to meet you one day at this ballpark. And, and we're praying for you. Hope you kick COVID's butt. How cool is that? That's awesome. Fantastic that's, stuff, dude. Like, and... That's oh man. That's just that's great. That's pretty and John, cool. John, like taking time out of his out of his. I mean, I'm not. You know, he's not. He's at the ballpark right now. The, the Orioles are getting ready for the Red Sox in an hour and 19 minutes. It's pretty clear <laughs> he's at the ballpark right now. Uh, I'm looking at the video. Um, and my dad just texted, "Wow, just wow, how?" and a crying emoji. So there you go. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, Darren Vaught, more baseball things to get to with you here. Albert Pujols, it seems like this is the end of the line for him. And I think uh, SVP did a really good job of putting into context just how great the numbers he's produced over his career are. Um, They're right there in line with a guy like Willie Mays who celebrated his 90th birthday yesterday, the oldest living Hall of Famer in Major League Baseball, how far is too far? How far would you be willing to go without risking uh, overstatement when talking about Albert's career? I mean, I think it's it's you're not exaggerating if you you can paint it with a broad brush and say he's one of the greatest hitters ever. I mean, and if you want to get picky about assigning a number to it, it's probably something in the realm of top ten or or top. 15. I, I mean, I, I think you can be perfectly comfortable going in that direction. I tweeted out the comparison between Trout's, Mike Trout's first 10 seasons in Major League Baseball. Now 2020 technically was his, his 10th season, and it was shortened, so you have to account for that. And then Albert Pujols's starting in 2001, his first 10 seasons. And I don't, Josh, I don't know that anyone has had a better first 
10 years in Major League Baseball. And, and you know, part of that, too, is the stipulation that Albert played full seasons in all 10. Now, you got to stay healthy for that, but you also have to be a rookie at the very start of the season. Trout also didn't have that luxury in 2011, his first year. He only played 40 games. But, man, I mean, Pujols' numbers were insane. It's like he, he started his career at 21 years old, and that's been – disputed as well so he's listed at, at 41 years old now and it's possible Pujols himself has even admitted that that it you know there's video evidence of him sort of slipping up with words that it's possible he's close to 45 years old now but either way you start your big league career and you have 10 consecutive seasons of 30 to 40 home runs 100 runs driven in uh his on base during that stretch was insane and I mean he's He's one of the greatest hitters ever. You can narrow it down and say one of the greatest home run hitters ever. You can narrow it down and say one of the greatest right-handed hitters ever. But he's definitely the player of the generation pre-Mike Trout, right? When you talk about players of a generation, it's Pujols. As far as hitters are concerned, it's Pujols. And then it's likely going to be Trout for this next chunk of time after. Robert Walsh. I'm going to pass along the steering wheel to you. We've got Darren Vaught with us here. We're talking baseball, and now we're going to do some comparing with Darren. How many do you have here for us? I got one for each of you, and then okay. I'll throw one out to both of you. Okay. Uh, I'll start with you, Darren. Uh, what is uh, the the commonality between an archaeologist and my girlfriend? Oh, jeez. Uh, I love to throw her under the bus. I, I think I think I know the answer to this. Something along the lines of digging. They won't stop digging. There you go. They're really good digging at digging out. up the past. Oh. <laughs> there it is. I thought it was going to be both very interested in big rocks. Uh, if I was going to do that, Josh, I would have said big bones. Uh, you're next with, tell me what the uh, commonality is with this. <laughs> Uh, what does Alexander the Great and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Does it have anything to do with them not wearing pants? Got to. It does not. Uh, they have the same middle oh. name. The. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, that's fantastic. Uh, and here's right. one for both you guys. Yeah. Uh, what... Little known fact that. His middle name is actually the. There you go. The Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Not him. <laughs> I think that actually is his middle name. What do these two things have in common? Uh, stoners and arthritis. Stoners, arthritis. Hmm. Goodness. Nobody said it was going to be easy. Something with their hands, maybe? Uh, both of them have inflamed joints. It's <laughs> <laughs> unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Pound for pound. That's a, that is a great... It session. really is. <laughs> that, that was a great comparing with Darren. Robert... He just hit us with a few uppercuts. This is like gonna this is gonna be like the Floyd Mayweather Jake Paul fight. Gonna be like three punches and there it is, it's over. If we just get the best stuff, <laughs> this is also two weeks. It took me two weeks to come up with three really good ones. <laughs> Darren Vaught, I appreciate you, brother. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. Likewise. See you guys. There he is, the host of the Covering the Bases USA Baseball Podcast probably calling a college baseball game somewhere near you. Voice of High Point Basketball with our guy Brian Geisinger. Darren does so much for us. We appreciate him.